Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 28, 2014, and before introducing today's guest, I want to mention that I have a new book coming out. It's now available for pre-order at Amazon. The title is How Adam Smith Can Change Your Life, An Unexpected Guide to Human Nature and Happiness. It's my attempt to apply Smith's theory of moral sentiments to modern life, lessons related to work, parenting, marriage, virtue, and even possibly happiness. Longtime listeners will remember the six-part series with Dan Klein on the theory of moral sentiments. You can check that out in the archives. And there will be an interview about the book with me coming soon with Mike Munger as interviewer, who I'm sure will grill me mercilessly. Now to today's guest. He is Paul Fleiderer. He is the C.O.G. Miller Distinguished Professor of Finance at the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University. We're going to be talking about a very interesting paper he's written recently called Chameleons, the Misuse of Theoretical Models in Finance and Economics, a topic that runs through many EconTalk episodes. Paul, welcome to EconTalk. Oh, thank you very, very much for having me. Let's start with the role that assumptions play in the modeling process in economics and finance. You describe something called theoretical cherry picking, an idea I had not heard before, or at least called that, and I thought it was really interesting. What do you mean by the phrase? Well, I'm actually referring in part uh, or hearkening back to the problem that plagues uh, empirical work, uh, which is cherry picking uh, the data. So if I wanted to show that a particular result might uh, occur, one way that I might uh, disingenuously do it is to cherry pick the data. In other words, choose the cases that confirm the hypothesis and reject those that uh, don't. There's actually a rather amusing story. I don't know the exact details. I can't remember them. But uh, here at the Stanford Research Institute many years ago, uh, which is not actually affiliated with Stanford now, but at the Institute, they were uh, testing uh, the ability of certain psychics to uh, basically display ESP behavior. And what they did is they gave these psychics a a machine that uh, they could actually take home and the machine would uh, randomly choose something and then the uh, psychics or the purported psychics would have to guess what it was. And it produced a tape that would show the ones that they had gotten correct and the ones that they hadn't. But what occurred was uh, the psychics or purported psychics could basically take the tape and tear off the misses and keep a big segment of the of the hits and come back and 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 show that they had uh, this ability. So that's that's just an example of the the problem, which we all know exists in uh, in the realm of, of of empirical work. So in theory, uh, in theoretical work. You can uh, potentially do this as well. I make the claim in the paper, which is, uh, uh, I make it with a little bit of qualification, that with any set of assumptions, you can produce uh, uh, a particular result. In other words, if you want to produce a particular result, you can choose a set of assumptions that uh, that will give rise to that result. Now, that's a little bit too strong, but almost Not any too result much. that Not so much. almost any. <laughs> That's probably right. I think almost any result uh, that doesn't uh, rely on a logical contradiction, uh, you can make a certain set of assumptions that would give rise to that. So uh, we're all in some sense aware of that, and uh, we know that there is that power out there. But in theoretical work, what we do, I think, is give a fair amount of latitude to people developing theoretical models because it's actually quite difficult to come up with a tractable model. And it's certainly impossible to come up with a model that uh, embraces all the things that are going on in the world. We, we, we choose a subset of, of things to model, a subset of forces that we think are important. And we make some assumptions uh, for tractability or to abstract from certain things that we think are not important. And what that gives, of course, is a fair latitude to focus on some things and, and not, uh, not put other things in the model and to put assumptions that we know are probably uh, somewhat contrived but make the, make the model tractable. What that opens the door to, I think, is the ability to 
start with the idea that I'm going to produce a certain result. I want to show that something's important. I want to show that if you do more of something, something bad will happen or something good will happen. Or I want to show that something that I see out there is an optimal solution to a problem. And I reverse engineer. I go back and see what set of assumptions I can contrive to give that result. And if I then take this model and say that it is actually telling me something about the real world, I'm engaged in a bit of theoretical cherry picking in the same way that if a psychic comes with a, a set of, uh, of successes on a tape and says, look at my ability, I have to be careful to ask whether that really is representative of the psychic's ability or whether it was cherry picked. So I introduce the notion in the paper of what I call bookshelf models, which is not meant to be pejorative at all, but simply an exploration of what happens when we make a certain set of assumptions, what conclusions we get. It's basically a logical exercise. And there are certainly a lot of examples in economics where we have models. Uh, I could mention one, the Lemons model, for instance, by Akerlof, which is a model that makes uh, a, a simple set of assumptions about asymmetric information between a buyer and a seller and has some very profound uh, insights into how the world might work. So these models are obviously very important for, for understanding uh, the phenomenon that we, we generally look at in, in economics. However, what we have to be careful about is taking those models off of what I'm going to call the bookshelf and applying them immediately to the real world without passing them through a filter to determine whether the assumptions that we've made are really ones that we have reason to believe are, are, are operative because we know that with theoretical cherry picking, someone can come up with a set of assumptions that produces a result that uh, may logically follow from those assumptions. But if the assumptions really don't have much uh, traction in the real world, that result really doesn't have much, much to say about uh, what we're what we're actually looking at. So let's take that Lemons model for a sec, and then we'll come back to the more general issue. In the Lemons model, uh, the seller knows more about the car than the buyer does, which is uh, at least a good place to start. I think that is somewhat realistic. And the reason I, I want to go into it is I think a lot of people on my side of the ideological fence, which is the fence that tends to be uh, respectful of what markets can achieve – they uh, somewhat, I think, mischaracterized the Akerlof paper by saying the implication that Akerlof draws from on that bookshelf model of asymmetric information, the fact that the seller is more than the buyer, is that used car model, used, the used car market can't exist because the seller knows too much. The buyer can't trust the seller, can't find out the information. And, of course, there is a used car market. So, obviously, this asymmetric information problem has been overcome in some dimension and I think the virtue of bookshelf models, uh, I'll, I'll be critical of them later, but, but I think the virtue of them is that it tells you where to look to understand why in this particular case this market does work somewhat well. Not perfectly, of course. No, model do, no market does. But w what are the underlying uh, market forces that make that market possible? And obvious examples are people find other sources of information than the seller for the quality of that car. And it allows the buyer to buy the car with some trust or warranties are provided sometimes for cars. That's another way that the used car market is sustained. So I think that's the, I think the best case story you can make for a bookshelf model. Am I being fair there? I, I think you are. So first of all, obviously used car markets do exist, but perhaps there are a lot of used car markets that don't exist that we don't see because the Akerlof phenomenon tends to be too, too, uh, too severe in those markets. So uh, but you're absolutely right, uh, and, and I, I should point out that in the Akerlof model, it's, it's not a case that these markets won't necessarily exist. Uh, if the asymmetric problem is 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 too large, uh, and the the gains to otherwise uh, trading and selling your car are too small, then the market will break down. But uh, if uh, there's asymmetric information, but at the same time there are legitimate reasons for for, for selling your car, for instance, for moving, then those markets can exist. So the, the Akerlof model is, is a great example of a, of a bookshelf model, I'll call it that, that gets us to think about what's important 
and what the trade-off is going to be in terms of whether a market can exist or not and explaining spreads. Uh, the Akhilov model certainly applies to trading in a financial market where there's asymmetric information between the, the buyer and the seller, and that explains in part uh, the spreads that we see in, uh, in, in transactions. So it opens up a host of insights, and uh, Akhilov certainly uh, deserved the Nobel Prize for, uh, for that modeling because it, it did give rise to a lot of uh, a lot of intuitions about how the world would work and how warranties might play a role and things of that sort. So, uh, I, I, and I I brought up the Akerlof model as an example of a bookshelf model just to show that I wasn't using that in a pejorative sense. Right. I think it's it's actually extremely important that we reason about uh, economic phenomena by asking what under a certain set of assumptions will occur and what won't occur because markets are, are somewhat complex. Economic phenomena are somewhat complex. And the whole reason for modeling is to make sure that we're not just thinking about things uh, on the surface and that we actually model things, look at the logical implications of something and actually detect in many cases some uh, second order effects that might actually be very important or some unintended consequences and all those types of things. So economic modeling is hugely important for our understanding anything in the world. And I don't mean to disparage modeling as an exercise. My criticism is when we somewhat blindly take those models off the shelf and immediately or too, without too much reflection, apply them to, to, to policy. In fact, my, my real criticism is that there's, a, there's sort of an ontological standing that some of these models have in the following sense. Someone has a model that they've written down and, and, and let's say published in, in maybe even a top tier journal that shows that something can happen in a certain situation. And it's a bookshelf model because it makes a certain set of assumptions and then shows what follows from those assumptions. But it requires an ontological status that it doesn't deserve when other people in a policy debate, for example, simply say that, oh, we have to be concerned about this because X has in a model shown that this happens. Well, we may have to be concerned about that, but before we get concerned about that or before we conclude that this is a legitimate phenomenon, we better look at that model and see if it applies to the world that we're actually interested in. Yep. In other words, are the assumptions reasonable and so on and so forth. So what I call a chameleon model is a model that is sort of straddling two worlds. On the one hand, it's a bookshelf model. It's simply a logical uh, exercise of seeing what follows from a given set of assumptions. But because it exists in that logical realm, then some other people, maybe the author of the model, but maybe some other people somehow think that because this is proven, it applies the conclusions of the model to the, to the so-called real world. And that's a big jump because before we know that it applies to the real world, we better look at what the model is assuming and make sure that it's captured the important things uh, that we know are going on. But what happens sometimes is when you end up challenging that model and, and criticizing it because of its assumptions, someone will then just uh, basically defend the model by saying, well, it's like any model, we make assumptions and sort of put it back on the bookshelf. In other words, say that that's unfair criticism. It's just an, a logical exercise that we're going through. So the model is a chameleon, is made into a chameleon because it straddles those, those, those two worlds. One, just a logical exercise that helps to give us some intuitions potentially, and another where we think that it actually applies to the real world without really passing it through the filter that we should pass any model through, asking uh, are the assumptions really, really ones that we believe are important in uh, explaining or potentially explaining some phenomenon. So we'll come back to that question about assumptions because we're going to talk about Milton Friedman's paper in a little bit. But I, I want to re rephrase or reframe what you're talking about. I, I think the fundamental question here, and I think it should be the fundamental question of all economics, and I think it often is not, which is I take to be your point. The fundamental question is, have we learned something about the real world from this application of the model? And I think too often, first of all, you know, it's ironic because I – weird. It's not just that empirical work supports the model, so therefore people claim, oh, well, so that shows that these assumptions are true. It's also sometimes just a simulation within the model using 
somewhat realistic measures or, or sizes for elasticities of substitution, say, or other pieces of the model. And I find that really unbelievable that we've come to the point in economics where a simulation of a theoretical model somehow tells us something about, say, immigration or capital uh, ta- taxation of capital or, or similar areas. Um, so to me, I, I think there is a natural tendency, which I think you're pointing out is wrong. It's a natural tendency to say, well, the model predicted well. If it captured something about reality, that means that my assumptions must be capturing something about reality. And you're, I take your big point to be that doesn't follow at all. That That is exactly my point. And uh, just to basically uh, reiterate what you said because you said it so well – the problem is that I can observe something happening in the real world. Let's call it B. B is a set of phenomenon or, or, or something about asset pricing, something about contracts that we see out there, uh, the effects of taxes, whatever it might be. I see something in the real world called B. It's, a, it's, it's something that I want to explain. And then I go back and I come up with a set of assumptions, uh, call it A1 through, through A10, uh, usually several assumptions have to be made. And I ask if I make those assumptions and then calibrate it, because I think what you're referring to this is sort of exercise of calibration. If I calibrate the assumptions, how big is risk aversion? How big is this? How big is that? And I do some simulations. Do I come up with B? Well, yes, if I have enough degrees of freedom in choosing those assumptions, this is the cherry picking, and I have enough degrees of freedom in, in the calibration exercise, I shouldn't be all that surprised if I'm able to come up with B. And uh, the problem, of course, is that there's also another set of assumptions, not A1 through A10, but A11 through A22, uh, that if I made those assumptions, or call them A prime, one through 10, whatever, a different set of assumptions, if I made those assumptions and calibrated those, I could probably also come somewhat close to explaining B, and this exercise could go on for a fairly long time. So you're exactly right. The fact that I can come up with a set of assumptions and calibrate those in in a way that gets me to approximate what I see out there doesn't tell me that those assumptions are correct and doesn't give me the right to take those assumptions into some other phenomenon and say, oh, this is how the world works. Now let's see what's going to apply there. I say it's worse than that. Um, so I want to, let me take an example, and, and I'm going to push you. Uh, you open your paper defending models. You just about four minutes ago defended them again. As a gen- in general, you're talking now about what what you think of as the misuse of, of modeling. But I, but I think the hard part is you've got to. I'm going to push you back into a corner. Question is, you know, are you going to be left anywhere out in the room, or you can just be back in the corner? So one of the key, obviously key issues facing economists today and, and policymakers is the labor market. It's not doing very well. It's not rebounded after this last recession the way I think a lot of people expected it to, would have predicted it to. And so people naturally look for explanations. There are numerous explanations based on various ways of looking at the world. And some of those are formal models, the kind we're talking about. Some are informal, really. People try to jazz them up and make them formal with some math. But but basically, you know, one set of views says there's a lot of uncertainty and people are having trouble making decisions. A second view says, well, we've distorted the labor market through a set of policies that we we might like. But one of the implications of that is that because of the high marginal tax rates that we've imposed on workers and on firms to hire them, we've made it harder for the labor market to expand. A third argument says, well, the real problem is lack of of aggregate demand. We should have spent more as a government, should have borrowed more. We shouldn't have worried about this or that, et cetera. And each side is totally capable of providing evidence which seems to confirm the underlying assumptions of the model. And I would argue, even though I'm very sympathetic to one set of some of those views and very unsympathetic to others, what's the basis for my sympathy or unsympathy? Where's the science in any of that other than uh, cherry-picking both assumptions and empirical evidence? So there's no doubt in my mind that People uh, don't come to these problems uh, with a with a clean slate, a tabula rasa. We all have our ideological uh, predisposition, probably, is a good way of of, of putting it. And people, uh, I think, uh, then gravitate toward toward certain explanations. And indeed, what one can do, I think, is look at look at this one time event because this this particular event is 
similar perhaps to what happened in the Great Depression, but very different in many other ways, and try to figure out what is is, is, is operative here and try to calibrate things. But invariably, you're making a, a certain set of assumptions, probably ignoring other things. And again, I think it's, it's exactly right that with a certain set of assumptions, you can come up with a result. With another set of assumptions, you can probably come up with the same result. And given how difficult it is to empirically test these things, we've only got one financial crisis of this particular sort. Uh, there are other ones that are maybe a little bit similar, but laws were different. All kinds of things were different. Uh, we don't really have the, the, the latitude to decide these things uh, definitively. And I guess that makes some people say economics can't be the science that uh, obviously some of the other scientists can be when you can do experiments in very controlled environments and have treatment effects and hold other things constant. The the one promising aspect of, of empirical work these days is that uh, empiricists have gotten pretty good at looking for natural experiments and looking for cases where uh, we can perhaps detect the directional causality. But I think it's well understood there that those natural experiments are oftentimes few and far between and not always directed at the, the big questions. So I've heard some colleagues of mine lament that some of the literature, the empirical literature on natural experiments is driven not so much by looking at the important questions that we want to answer and then looking around for a natural experiment because a lot of times we can't find one, but rather seeing some natural experiment that occurs and Aha, then paper, doing the analysis. A, public, a publishing a paper, opportunity. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But uh, I think that's a little bit too cynical. I, I think that our, our search for natural experiments to try to determine when we look at, uh, for instance, a state boundary where the law is different on one side of the state boundary than the other, and it's pretty much to be taken as exogenous, perhaps uh, whether one is living on one side of the state boundary or the other because one didn't locate there because of the law, we can conclude some things there. But obviously, if you look at the current debate, the natural experiments haven't decided in favor of any particular view of what's causing uh, the the situation we're in now with, with, with labor markets being where they are and people can hold uh, hold to various weightings of how much it's due to lack of demand, government policy, uh, structural problems that still haven't been ironed technology, out. Technology, we didn't, I didn't mention that technology. one. Yeah, yeah so, exactly. So let me take a so – I'm a, some of those natural experiments, of course, are very creative. People do some interesting work. A lot of times they have the, a different kind of theoretical cherry-picking. It's a specification cherry-picking problem in, in how the empirical work's carried out about those assumptions. But let me take a, 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 a natural experiment that took place after World War II, which was the uh, collapse of the size of government spending in the, in the aftermath of the war, which uh, Paul Samuelson in 1943 had written. It seemed reasonable at the time. That if the war ended and government spending fell dramatically as it did, we would be engulfed in a major depression. Uh, a lot of other Keynesians were worried about that. and But as we all know, very little happened to, to prevent that. The government spending fell, I think, by about 60 percent. And there was no recession, certainly not the worst depression. Uh, Samuelson said it would be the worst uh, depression of, of American history. Uh, there was a recession a year or two after, two, about a year and a half, two years after the war ended, but it doesn't appear to be related to the drop in government spending. So what's fascinating to me is that you'd think that failure to predict that correctly would have led people to reassess their understanding of the underlying assumptions. It did, as far as I can tell, very little changed. The Keynesians found reasons to explain why they, they didn't change their views and why that experiment was not really decisive and just extremely hard, it seems to me, in empirical work and economics maybe impossible, to um, to disconfirm, to disprove, to reject a theory the way it is in the physical sciences. And um, to me, it seems we, we, should, we shouldn't be doing that. It just seems, I know that's what people want from us, but we don't really, I don't think, necessarily advance any knowledge by the way we talk about these issues. I, I do have to agree with you there. Uh, in, in, a, in a world where we're, we're learning from data, we would start with, 
with some priors. Now, it's an interesting question why we might start with different priors, but perhaps if we were we were all born into the same situation and had the, the same configuration uh, in our minds, uh, we would have the same priors. And then we see, we, we, we see data and we, we, we update those priors to, to, to a posterior. And you're certainly right that after uh, an event that seems to contradict, and I, I think there are examples that all sides can give here of, of some prediction that was made where uh, it, didn't, it wasn't actually, actually borne out, uh, we should presumably revise our, 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 our priors and put more weight on one explanation or another, or at least at the very, at the very least uh, become somewhat less sure that our explanation, which has just been contradicted, is, uh, is, is the true one. But I think here's where you have uh, the, uh, the great creativity that we can have with, with, with assumptions we can go back and explain if our prior is strong enough that that our original explanation, be it Keynesian or non-Keynesian or whatever it is, if our prior on that was strong enough, then we can go back and explain why something didn't occur that we might have predicted because something else was was operative. Put in another assumption and and tweak the model, if you will, to produce the produce the result that we actually observed. So that I think most people that would talk about the scientific method would say is 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 not playing fair. The only uh, defense of that I would suppose is that the world is so complex that what we do need to look at perhaps when something happens that is 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 not conforming to our models, perhaps there's something important at play that we overlooked and our model, our overall model may still be correct, but we've, we've, we've missed something important. So I suppose in the case of what you're talking about with uh, demand being uh, not diminished after World War II uh, ended, um, the obvious answer that people can give is, well, there was all this pent up consumer demand because people hadn't been able to consume during the war and that was unleashed. And, and to a certain extent, of course, we, 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 we see that people started buying television sets and cars and all kinds of other things. Family formation went up. There uh, was the, 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 the baby boom of, of which um, cohort I'm a member. But, uh, but the, the exercise is one that's dissatisfying if our, our view of the world is one that we'll never reject because we can always, we can always come, by with, uh, come up with a mitigating factor or, or some tweak to the model that, that, that preserves our most cherished assumptions. Yeah, the problem is, of course, that, that no one anticipated – it's bizarre that no one anticipated the pent-up demand. Um, it should have been part of the model in theory, and now, they, as you say, people then put that in. And, but the question then is if, you're, if you do that every time <laughs> there's a large natural experiment, one should – start to uh, question ones, please. I want to come back to something you said a minute ago because I think it's really a nice way to think about it. Uh, when Ricardo Reich was on this program uh, a few years ago, he argued that we'd kind of mastered monetary economics but fiscal uh, theory and, and stuff we still weren't didn't quite understand. And I said, well, again, I guess 80 years isn't enough. We just need a little more data. And he's actually, I think, believes that. I mean, I think most economists do. But as you pointed out, if every case is different, well, this financial thing, it's true. This is like the Great Depression because it had a financial meltdown, but it's not exactly like it because we have shadow banking and they didn't. If every case is unique, you're just an historian. You're, you can't be an economist. If, uh, if we really need 30 more great recessions like the one we just had in 2008, some people could be optimistic and say, well, then we'll have enough data. Then we'll be able to say, well, in these kinds – we can predict what's going to happen, say, to the labor market. But I think that's really um, – I think that's unrealistic. Well, we – in in the end, I'll make the, the trait observation. We do have to make assumptions. Janet Yellen has to uh, have uh, have an opinion about how to do things and all the people working in the Fed do as well and uh, those voting in the, in the Congress do. Uh, the IMF, uh, the ECB, everyone – is having is, is in a position where they have to take uh, a stand. There's a there's a decision to be made. Maybe not at the end of the day, but perhaps at the end of the week or the end of the month. So uh, I think we my my emphasis here is on what I would call 
uh, critical analytical thinking. We have a course here at the Graduate School of Business called Critical Analytical Thinking that uh, all of our MBA students are required to take, which is to approach any issue of this sort with a healthy dose of, of skepticism, make sure that the arguments are logical, and make sure that one is asking every chance you get, where's the evidence for that? If an assumption is or a premise of an argument is is not well supported, observe that it's not well supported. And if it's key to the argument, realize that your argument is is not well supported. That discipline, no doubt, uh, at least maybe this is just a a belief of mine and and, and others, (laughs) that discipline... would one would hope let's put yeah, it that way it is going well. to lead to lead to better decision making in the end uh but of course the discouraging thing is we have we have very bright people uh who have access presumably to the to the same data who come to radically different uh decisions and the hope would be that put those very bright people in the room and rather than shouting at each other let's 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 have a discussion. What what's the evidence that supports your position? What's the evidence that supports mine? Uh, what's missing here? Go through a critical process. Perhaps at the end of the day or end of the weekend or month, we're we're a little bit better off in making a, making a decision. Well, I want to I want to come back to your oh, Jenny no. Ellen. I want to come back to your Jenny Ellen example because um, mm-hmm. if if we had private money, for example, she wouldn't have to make those decisions. Or if we had a monetary rule of a constant monetary growth, her decision-making power would be much narrower. But I think the more important point in the real situation we're in now is one that I think comes out of your paper, and maybe you want to hedge it a bit, which is it's not so much that, well, she has to do something and, and she's got to use the best available evidence. It's the sociological tendency of our profession to endow what we do with more scientific merit than I think it deserves. So it's not so much that, well, of course, she's got to make a decision and she does the best she can. But to pretend it's somewhat scientific, which I think she has to do, she tends to do, she has the incentive to do, is is the problem because it, it gives it a um, a grandeur it, it doesn't deserve. I agree with that, but, but, and there's a comma there and then the word but, I think we have to be careful that we don't go to another extreme. So I completely agree that we know less in terms of what we can conclude from evidence, the fact that there are lots of models that produce the same results. So as a logical proposition, we can't necessarily simply use logic to eliminate nine out of the 10 models and look, oh, here's the surviving model. The others are illogical. Here's the one that works. No, all, all 10 of those models are, are, are logical and yet uh, they have very different implications. So we've got a limited ability to do that. We've got a limited ability to use evidence. The world, unlike the world of chemistry and physics, is uh, the world of economics, unlike the world of chemistry and physics, is is highly non-stationary. The laws change. uh, Unlike molecules or electrons, uh, people actually think. They they, they read uh, what... uh, even economists are saying and they react. So if economists say people are probably doing this and it's going to lead to this, maybe some people read that and then they don't act that way. They act a, they act a different way. So we've got a, a much more difficult problem than what uh, what the chemist and the, the physicists have, even though they've got a hugely difficult problem as well, no doubt. But if we go to the other extreme and say that modeling and logical thinking and particularly use of evidence is not going to get us anywhere, then I think we're just left with a complete shouting match where anything goes. I think we need to try to incorporate as much of the scientific discipline into our thinking as we can, but at the same time recognize that that gets us somewhere down the road, but it doesn't get us all the way, that uh, we can't pretend to know more than what we know. And so here's where I completely agree with you. When someone has a model uh, with a bunch of variables and they've got some nice tables and they've got some nice graphs, maybe 20 graphs at the end showing what happens when there's a shock and exactly how things are going to play out. Don't forget one the Greek has letters. To look at that. Oh, Greek letters are very important. You're absolutely right. One has to look at that and realize what's behind that enterprise. A bunch of assumptions have been made that produce a tractable model. Things have been tweaked. And yes, buried in that may be some insights 
but it's also possible that it's totally vacuous. And we need to look very carefully at that exercise to see what we actually learn. But it does have the patina of, of scientific truth behind it, when, especially when it's looked at by laypersons. And uh, it carries, therefore, more than what it should in the, in the debate. And that's, that's, that's where I'm coming in. And it sounds like you're in complete agreement with that as well. Yeah, I want to give you an example from finance because um, I think it's fascinating. Uh, a lot of people blame uh, value at risk, VAR, VAR models for some of the risk-taking that firms took during the crisis. Uh, let's put that aside for the moment, whether that was crucial or tangential or whatever. But certainly firms did use this model. And Nassim Taleb has criticized the use of that model, saying it's very inapplicable. And when I talk to people in the profession about it, they say, tend to say things like, well, of course we know it's not perfect. We know it's based on these unrealistic assumptions about the distribution of returns, say. We know it's prone to black swans. We knew that all along. But you have to use something. And isn't some information better than nothing? My worry, and it's the same with Janet Yellen, is that after a while you kind of forget. It's a human problem. It's just a, a human failing. You, you tend to overestimate part, maybe it's the Greek letters, but you overestimate the the value of that information and you tend to forget the fact that it's, quote, just a model. Do you think that's true? I think that's true, but I would emphasize something else. So if I'm if I'm sitting up here in my office as I am looking out the window and I see someone doing something out there and I want to ask what's their what's their risk, it might be that a value of risk calculation is 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 a, a good measure to, to to look at how risky whatever their activity is. Um, I'm speaking somewhat metaphorically here, but as soon as I go to a different situation where I'm telling that individual who has an incentive to take risk, I'm telling him, "Here's how I'm going to measure your risk. Yeah. Here's the benchmark I'm going to use." Then I'm in much greater difficulty because, as we know, many of these things can be can be gamed. And I think that a lot of our regulation is is of that sort, where we like to have models, uh, risk weights and capital requirements, uh, value at risk, model risk, uh, various models that are used to measure risk. And if if we're simply standing outside and, and asking, let's just measure these from sort of the control tower just to see where we are, that that, that could be problematic. But it's much more problematic when we tell people who have incentives to take risk or have incentives to deviate from what we would like them to do, here's how we're going to measure you. And especially we get people who are very, very smart, as have been attracted to certain industries, especially finance, uh, who are very good at gaming those. So I, I, I agree with the first proposition that relying on simple measures like value at risk or risk weights and capital, budget, um, capital uh, requirements uh, is problematic, but it's especially problematic when there's an incentive on the other side to to to, to game the system. Yeah, it's a great point, and it you know I always like to say, yeah, you know the regulatory regime said AAA is safe, and then you look around and you say, well, there's not much AAA. Well, so we'll have to invent some. So they did. <laughs> it was very creative, yeah. very smart people. Uh, let's. Well, there, 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 there's a good example. So AAA, uh, when when one is rating corporate bonds. One is basically just taking a, a, looking at a situation, and the, the rating agencies were doing that. And a corporation has some ability to 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 change the risk of those corporate bonds, but that's not really on their radar screen. If it's Hewlett Packard, they're they're making printers. They're not looking at sort of adjusting uh, their their risk, their corporate risk, to 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 affect the rating on a particular bond. That's really third order in in what they're doing. But when we talk about securitized products, as we had in 2006, 2007, what we saw was that there was uh, an incentive to get a AAA rating or a particular rating, and there was this ability to fine-tune it in cahoots, I think, in some cases with uh, – maybe that's a little bit strong way to put it. but Well, the incentives uh, aligned. The incentives, were, <laughs> the incentives were aligned, that's right. And, and, and you have control – over over the risk and what gets gets uh, rated AAA. So of course, what we had is everyone just getting right over the margin. And so instead of things being at the average level, we had things at the margin. And 
and a lot of, 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 of tweaking that created more risk than what uh, what you would have had with, with corporate bonds that were rated AAA. Of course, not too many of those left. Let's let's talk about Friedman, Milton Friedman's classic article that's related to these questions, um, The Methodology of Positive Economics, a paper I read in graduate school, um, which I thought was brilliant and wonderful and now not so sure. You're very critical of it. Friedman basically argued assumptions don't have to be realistic at all. All that matters is predictions. And it's not necessary that that assumptions be realistic as long as people act as if they were. Talk about the as if and uh, why uh, it gets misapplied in, say, finance models. So uh, first, first of all, just just a little bit of an overview. I'm, I'm uh, Milton Friedman's uh, article has, I, th- I think, one of the most cited articles in in the the realm of sort of philosophy of, of economics, which is actually a, actually a field. And so I'm I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on that subject. Uh, it's certainly not what I've devoted uh, my career to. And there are people out there that have uh, have have parsed. Uh, the instrumentalism or whatever it is that they they attribute to to uh, Milton Friedman very carefully and lots of ink has been spilled over that my my discussion of of that article was simply to say that his reasoning doesn't allow or shouldn't be used to allow chameleons to exist in other words it shouldn't be the case that one can simply say oh you're criticizing the application of a model to a policy question on the basis of its assumptions not really having any traction or any any intersection with the real world. You can't do that because Milton Friedman said we don't judge models by their assumptions, but rather just by their predictions. It's that line of reasoning, or which I consider false reasoning, that I'm that I'm actually questioning. But in terms of the as if argument, I've been disturbed about this for a long time, at least in its use in in finance and more generally in economics. So Milton Friedman introduced the as if argument when he talked about a pool player, a billiard player, who is perhaps someone who dropped out of high school, doesn't know anything about geometry or physics, but is an expert pool player. We can't assume that he or she is solving complex uh, problems in the dynamics of, of, of billiard balls or even the, the, the geometry of the, of the pool table. Uh, but we could nevertheless predict what the, what the pool player is doing when, if, 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 if we used those uh, laws of, of, of the dynamics of uh, the physics of a billiard ball plus the geometry of the table. If we assume that the billiard player was solving those 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 equations uh, and solving the geometry, then we could predict what the billiard player was 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 doing. And indeed, that's right. But then it's important. It's a very to ask, clever example, isn't it? It is a very <laughs> clever example. About how clever it is. Go ahead. It is a very clever example. But there's something very specific about this example. I asked one of my colleagues here who uh, actually is someone who plays pool uh, semi-professionally, how many uh, shots he thought he took in an hour, and and just in terms of practicing. And he said probably somewhere between 60 and 100. So if we take the notion that someone becomes an expert after 10,000 hours of of, of, of practice, then a pool player has has probably taken upwards of, of perhaps a million shots. And... It's all in a very structured environment. I'm shooting the ball. I get instantaneous feedback or almost instantaneous feedback as to whether I hit that ball correctly. Did it send, did the cue ball send this other ball into the pocket or not? And uh, this is true for all kinds of things. If you think about uh, a baseball player running uh, and catching a fly ball, it's really quite an amazing feat when someone runs and they end up precisely where they need to be when that ball is falling. And the problem that they're actually solving in their in their head, in some way, to to run to where that ball is going to 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 land and to be able to make the catch, something we see every day if you watch uh, Major League Baseball, is is really quite incredible. But again, that's something that happened because they played the game probably since they were in little league and they get this continuous feedback. If you don't run in the right direction, you're going to miss the ball. So we take that as if 
argument, which I think works in billiards and my other example here of baseball because of the repetitive nature of the game that's being played and the very quick feedback you get, whether you succeeded or not. And then we look at another realm like, um, and I use in the paper the example of, of, of capital structure decisions that are made by firms, although I could have used all kinds of examples. But capital structure is, is one area that's studied a lot in, uh, in finance. How does a firm determine when to change its capital structure? Or actually, initially, what its capital structure should be? How much debt? How much equity? What type of debt? And uh, the problem that we have is that we see firms that are very similarly situated in the same industry, uh, similarly uh, similar risk, whatever, having very different capital structures and evolving in different ways. And we realize that uh, there's no simple explanation for it. So some of the models that we find in the literature, and I actually have the equations from one of them in, in my paper, uh, involve solving incredibly complex dynamic programming problems that the researchers themselves who put these papers together takes them, no doubt, several months and a lot of numerical work uh, and programming to, 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 to actually solve. Now, no problem, perhaps... CFOs and those that are making these decisions are exactly like the billiard player. They, they can't solve these, 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 uh, these complicated dynamic programming problems, no doubt, but somehow they've learned to do it. But wait a minute, how often does a CFO make a capital structure decision, whether to issue some more debt and buy back some equity or whatever the decision might be? Not all that often, certainly not a million times as a, an expert pool player would. And what is the immediate feedback that you get? In the case of the pool player, you see whether the ball went into the pocket or not. But in the case of the CFO, you change your, your capital structure. And do you see whether that's a good thing? Well, maybe there's a stock price reaction, but that assumes that the, the stock market can figure out whether that was the right thing or not, and they're solving these complicated equations. Or maybe you wait and then you see if you avoided bankruptcy, but you only get a few draws here. You don't get that continuous or almost continuous feedback. So the as-if argument is being applied in a lot of places in economics when you really have to step back and ask, wait a minute, are these situations like the pool player or the baseball player where someone's getting repeated feedback in a very structured environment or these cases where someone's solving a very complicated problem in an economic environment that we don't even know how to model. And the problem, of course, is, is that when people try to model such things as capital structure decisions, if you put 10 so-called experts into a room, and I'm talking about academics, they come up with 10 different models. Whereas with the billiard player or the baseball player, if you put 10 experts, this, these would be physicists who know, know geometry and uh, the fact that uh, a, a baseball is going to follow a parabola. If you put them in a room, they would, they would come up pretty much the same model of exactly how the baseball player is going to run or exactly how the, the pool player is going to shoot the shot. So I think the as-if argument certainly applies in some cases, but in a lot of cases where it's applied, it's just wishful thinking. We're going to solve these complicated problems um, because it actually is sort of fun to do as researchers, and it gives us some credibility that we're able to solve these complicated models. But asking if these really apply to the real world and people are actually able to make decisions in that way, I think doesn't pass the smell test. Well, I agree with you, and I think... I never thought about this before, but if we think about the baseball problem, uh, nobody teaches a child to catch a fly ball by saying, well, just try to figure – take a stab at where you think it's going to land. And just head toward it. And in fact, I think there have been – because that's not how – certainly not how major league center fielders go after a ball. What I'm told is they, they – people have actually tried to study eye movement and other things – and they make these subtle, small adjustments, just like a, a football player is doing the same thing for a pass. They make small, subtle adjustments uh, in a very much trial and error way to get toward that ball. They have to start in the right direction, obviously. There's a certain intuition or gift. Uh, but nobody is solving a differential or a, or a programming problem or any of these things, these complicated uh, problems that that uh, that we – in the under the as-if hypothesis. Now, Friedman would, would answer, I think. He'd say, well – 
I agree with you. It's, of course, it's true that the CFOs don't really solve the differential equations. And it's true that we don't really understand how they make the decisions, but it's as if they do. And I think the real cha- challenges here is that because we don't observe the full set of variables, because we really can't model, including things like what the CFO had for breakfast and the, the fight in fight that the CFO got in with uh, her husband the night before, because we don't have all the variables and the information, this is a very high acumen point, obviously, then it's not just that, well, we don't really capture exactly what's going on. We miscapture it, and especially when those underlying variables change in systematic ways. And if we don't, again, I think the, the lesson here is clearly uh, humility. I, I, I completely agree, and I, I think we, we get into this situation in part because of the following. If I want to model some economic phenomenon, what I have to do is, first of all, describe the world in which the economic agents are acting in. Um, and I'm sure that's the best constructed sentence, but think about what the economic agents are, 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 are doing, what they're attempting to do, and what the, what the various forces are that they're, they're, they're doing. And it's, in other words, describe the pool table, describe the, uh, the baseball field. But of course, it's much, much more complicated. But what we'd like to do is once we've, once we've done that, we'd like to think that we're done. And we would be done if we could assume that the agents who were operating in that environment were optimizing, solving, solving the problem in the same way that a physicist would solve it. Uh, because once we made those assumptions, everything else is just math. Everything else is just working out yep. the implications of it. But if we step back and say, well, there's this very complicated environment that we have to describe. But then we know that economic agents can't solve those incredibly difficult problems. They're doing things heuristically. They're doing things by trial and error. But the problem is they don't get all that many trials. They don't get the same number of trials that a little boy does or a little girl playing, uh, playing baseball or, or uh, a pool player gets. So they're using heuristics and rules of thumb and whatever to solve these problems. And the, the, the state of the art, such as it is, is changing. People are trying all kinds of different things. That's a much more difficult world to describe because not only do I have to describe the environment, I have to describe how agents are trying to muddle their way through it. And there are a huge number of ways to do that. So it opens up much more in terms of the degrees of freedom in modeling because I have to describe sort of the, the satisfying or the heuristics that agents are using and a lot of us, myself included, wouldn't like to have the responsibility to do that. It's much easier to say, well, here's the environment. Now I'll just assume that agents have rational expectations, infinite processing power, and can, can optimize. And in some situations, that may not be a very bad assumption. But in a lot of situations, I think it's, 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 it's highly suspect. And we're, as I said at one point in the paper, because, of course, you would expect in a paper like this that I would say it, we're, we're looking for the keys under the, under the lamppost, uh, even though uh, we, we lost them somewhere else. I'm sure uh, probably most of your listeners know the, the, the reference. Yes, no that, doubt. Uh, uh, I'm sure. You look for the keys where the light is, even though you haven't lost them, you lost them in the darkness. So um, let me make a list of humble people. Uh, there's you. There's me. Uh, Lars Hansen was pretty humble, I'd say, about the limitations of models, the power of models when he was on EconDoc a little while back. Um, your your colleague and co-author, Anad Admati, who sent me your paper, I'd say, is sympathetic. to That's four of us. Uh, but the problem is, uh, and, I, and you allude to this, is that the incentives are all toward overconfidence. Uh, so two questions. One, what kind of reaction have you gotten to your paper from your fellow economists and two, what do you think might be done to head us in a more humble direction? Besides encouraging people to listen to econ talk, which, I, which I'm in favor of. I, and, and I would be as well. So let's uh, establish that. So let me, let, me, let me first of all talk to the reaction to the paper. I was quite frankly surprised because I assumed that uh, once it got distributed and people were looking at it, I, I expected a fair amount of pushback that um, I had – created uh, straw, straw, straw man arguments that I had uh, gone overboard in one direction or another, that I'd mischaracterize it, that I'd exaggerate it. And I can tell you that I haven't heard any of that. Now, people may be thinking that, but they haven't communicated that directly to me. 
all of the communications, and I, I don't have to say almost all, all the communications I've got are from people who uh, basically are in agreement uh, with, with, with the major propositions that I, I put forward or very sympathetic to the arguments I made. And that really surprised me. Now, of course, um, I know that there's a huge selection there. bias yeah. here, that uh, those, those uh, who, who uh, didn't agree just, just chose to, to ignore it. But, but in some sense, if, uh, I, I, I know that in our profession, uh, in, in among academics in general, if someone disagrees and they've got a good argument to make, um, they usually step up and make that argument. So I'm not concluding that there aren't good arguments out there against what I'm saying, but I haven't heard them. And the fact that I haven't heard them gives me a little bit of confidence that uh, I'm, I'm probably pretty well justified in making making the, the points that I'm making. But perhaps um, listeners will, will listen to this and I'll get a deluge of, of, of people telling me why I'm wrong. But it's the paper's been out there for for quite a few months now, and uh, I haven't heard anyone uh, uh, make a. So let me give a, you let me give you an analogy. Uh, the emperor is walking down the street; he doesn't have any clothes on, and we, his subjects, are cheering him wildly and telling him how beautiful his outfit is. Uh, we go back home, and I'm mowing my lawn, and I see you over the fence mowing yours, and you say, "Boy, you know the the emperor looked pretty um, pretty." naked today and you'd say yeah I, I think he was totally naked i don't think he had any clothes on and the next day we're back on the street waving our banners and flags and cheering him uh so i, I suspect that on the privately and in intellectually we all agree with what you said or a lot of people do it's really hard to act that way though because the reward structure doesn't tend that in that direction I, I think that is is the issue. Uh, you mentioned that those that uh, have the confidence uh, and uh, perhaps uh, don't have the necessary humility here have the confidence to say that uh, their model and their calibrations uh, really really tell us something. They're 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 going to be uh, probably given more credit than what they deserve. People want answers. And if someone can come up with an answer, especially if it seems seems scientific, uh, people are going to be, be be willing to listen to it. I also uh, feel for for those who are going through PhD programs in 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 economics in general and maybe finance specifically, because we have a, we have a huge premium that we put on the ability to develop fairly complicated models and, and solve them. And again, I think this is a very important activity that can give us insights. But what is important, I think, among researchers, especially as they become mature researchers, is to sort of step back from that enterprise and be a little bit more forthcoming about the limitations of these models and their inability in many ways to speak to, to, to various Various policy concerns, or how we have to use them somewhat judiciously, when we when we do that. So there's there's a a, a lack of humility, perhaps among some who who do this. But I think it, what really is the problem is a collective lack of humility that somehow the the economics enterprise is one that uh, doesn't in in aggregate quite have the humility that it that it should. In terms of in terms of what we can say about the world and what we can't, but I'm going to put another comment about there. I don't see any alternative to the activities that we're engaged in. In other words, trying to formulate models that that that, that make sense and are well grounded, and doing empirical work and trying to find natural experiments uh, to learn as much as we can about the world. So I don't want to be anti-scientific here at all. I want to be as scientific as, as, as we in the profession can be, but obviously realize the, the limitations. And that, of course, is scientific, uh, to realize the limitations of what you can know and to, to put the right air bounds on, 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 on whatever you have. And uh, I think in many cases, uh, both theory, theory and empirics, we don't quite have the right air bounds on, 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 on what we're saying. My guest today has been Paul Fleiderer. Paul, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Well, thank you for inviting me. This has uh, been been an interesting uh, discussion. Uh, I actually learned a lot from some of the uh, things that you brought up here, and 
I uh, would love to engage with anyone who wants to engage. Looking forward to that. Thanks so much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.